Well, after a uh, six-week break, uh, largely through the season of Advent, we return this morning uh, to our study of the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. Uh, There's Bibles in the back for you to use. You can turn to the insert found in your bulletin. Uh, I kind of want to read the entire letter to you uh, before we jump back in after a six-week hiatus, but I'm not going to do that. Um, I wanted to do that because I just wanted to get us again in the flow of Peter's thinking and of Peter's writing to the early church and as it comes to us now, passed down by the Holy Spirit to us as the people of God today. Remember, when this letter was originally um, given, it would have been heard. It would have been heard orally, and it would have been heard likely in one sitting by the people of God. A lot to digest. We have the luxury of having it in our laps and of chopping it up into little tiny pieces uh, that our brains can wrap our, uh, their thoughts around and our hearts can wrap its, its thoughts around But in order to get us up to speed, I have, uh, the way I decided to do this, rather than read the entire letter, uh, back to where we find ourselves this morning, is I have six sermon titles for you. Um, Six sermon titles of six profound sermons that you remember very well. Um, I'm sure you can just list all the points of these sermons. Um, The first one, embracing exile. Our identity in this world as the people of God, Peter reminded us, he began the letter by calling us elect exiles. Remember that? That was right out of the gate where we were reminded of who we are and our position in the world. And then the second uh, place we went was a living hope where we focused on the gift of the triune God in giving us an inheritance that is imperishable, that is unfading that is kept in heaven for us. And that living hope becomes this motivating factor in a life of exile, in a pilgrimage such as ours. And then we move to the story of us and the fact that we are part of a large story, a story that the prophets prophesied long ago, a story that the angels long to look into. And that story creates a new people And that's where we went next, new family traditions as obedient children, verses one, uh, chapter one, verse 13 and following as obedient children, we are called to be holy as he is holy. And that involves growing up, which was the next place we went. The need to take our Christian growth seriously, long for spiritual milk, Peter said. And then finally, a peculiar people, a people that are being built into a spiritual house alongside one one another. And so those six sermon titles get us up to speed, embracing exile, a living hope, the story of us, new family traditions, growing up, a peculiar people, all of those things are gospel foundation for what is now coming from the pen of Peter. I told you when we pressed pause weeks ago that it was a good place for us to do so. It was a good place for us to to stop for a few weeks because the next two verses, these two verses that I'm going to read in just a moment, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, they begin a new section in Peter's letter. 
transitioning his hearers from how to transitioning his hearers from their gospel identity to how to be holy, what that looks like, how to live a life in exile. And so today we just begin to dip our our toes in that water, so to speak. And today is a broader brush than the weeks following will be. Verses 13 through 17, we'll talk about our relationship to our government And then verses 18 through 25, our relationship to our employment. And then chapter three, verses one through seven, our relationships in marriage. But today we begin with verses 11 and 12. And you're saying, well, I I see another passage there. Yes, as I was studying this week, I recognized how similar verses 11 and 12 are to the first five verses of chapter four. Peter basically returns to the same theme, almost book-ending, where we're going to be in the next several weeks. Chapter 2, verse 11 through 11 and 12, and then chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And so I wanted to include it here today in this sermon because it helpfully, I think, fills out some of what Peter paints and what Peter says here in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. So with that lengthy introduction, let's look at these verses for a few minutes. Uh, I invite you uh, to stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and then we'll jump to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Listen as I read. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Many of you know from experience The traveling to a foreign land requires preparation and advanced planning for what you're going to face wherever it is you're going. Back in 2009, before moving here to Washington, I led a a missions team to Uganda, East Africa, and among a host of preparations that we made for that trip, I remember two distinct things. First of all, I remember arming ourselves with malaria prevention and other immunizations that would protect us 
from bacteria that we were unaccustomed to facing. Secondly, I remember consciously abstaining from liquids and foods that I was not suited for. Not just my Western palate and taste buds, but my Western uh, digestive system. I needed to be careful. Arming and abstaining. Two words that described part of my preparations for living in a place that wasn't my home. Two words that are found in these passages this morning that I just read. For we too are living in a place that's not our home. We too need to be aware and intentional about the dangers that surround us and how to face them. And so I want to focus on those two words, arming and abstaining, with two simple truths. And the first one is this, living in exile requires arming yourselves. Living in exile requires arming yourselves. Yes, I said arming yourselves. That's not a very popular word to say in this day and age. It's not soft language for any society, but it's the very exhortation that Peter gives us here, both in the specific language that he uses in chapter 4, verse 1, as well as the language he uses in verse 11 of chapter 2 when he says, which wage war? Arming in chapter four, wage war in chapter two. That's not soft language. That's not beating around the bush. The same form of word, the same form of that Greek word is used in 2 Timothy 2 when Paul tells Timothy that no soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. And so the idea here is service as a soldier, arming yourselves, as exiles. And on top of that, Peter says, I urge you. Other translations say potentially uh, translating it as, I beg you. I beg you, church. You can almost hear the emotion in his voice. I beg of you, arm yourselves, because life is war. Now, we could spend a whole sermon just on that one idea. That there are things in our existence, there are passions in our own hearts that wage war against our souls. And so, pursuing holiness is war. We are not at peace, spiritually speaking, but we're called to be watchful, we're called to be prayerful, and we're called to arm ourselves. Here we are at the start of a new year, 2020, the start of new commitments for some of us, taking care of our bodies in a renewed way, shedding those pounds that came during the holiday season. I don't know what what it is, but are we committed? Have we thought about, intentionally so, and I know some of you have, 
how we are going to care for our souls this year. When Peter mentions the word soul here, he's clearly talking about the immaterial, non-physical part of us. He's not simply using soul as interchangeable with person, like three souls died that day. No, he's he's talking about the spiritual, immaterial part of us. And there is a war being waged against our souls, so arm yourselves against this danger. But with what? Living in exile means arming ourselves, but with what? Well, we might say with the proper mindscape or with the proper way of thinking. Right, chapter four, verse one, that's essentially what Peter says. This is where it all begins. And of course, we know this, right? We, we know this. We say the phrase, what were you thinking? Right, we say that to our kids, or at least I do. Maybe your kids never need that phrase, but mine do from time to time. What were you thinking? Use your head next time. We investigate motives after a crime has been committed because out of our minds flow the actions we take, and so the Bible rightly focuses on our minds, on the thinking behind our behavior. We've already seen this, we've already talked about this a little bit in chapter one, verse 13, where Peter said to the church, gird up the loins of your mind, right? Tuck it all in, gird yourself up. Specifically, your mind. Peter wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, that they must be transformed by the ongoing process of the renewal of their minds, of the renewal of their thinking. And so arm yourselves, Peter says, with a way of thinking. Well, let's put a finer point on that, because that's what Peter does. I want to talk about two things specifically for us to think rightly about, for us to arm ourselves with, and hopefully these come out of the texts that we just read. First of all, Peter returns once again to our identity. Do you see that? To the importance of remembering and reminding ourselves who we are. We must think first rightly about ourselves because the context that we live in can lull us into thinking that we are someone we're not. Sometimes my wife has called me out on a a weird phenomenon that happens, and maybe this has happened before to you, that when we go to visit my parents at times, suddenly Nate, husband, father, pastor, becomes Nate, son of Bert and Jane. And the way I act and the way I respond to certain situations, I kind of slip back into this mentality that, I, that I'm a son. And, and that can be good, right? But it also can be bad because I'm no longer a son in their home. I'm no longer a son under their authority in the same way that I was. I'm now a man who's called to be a father, who's called to be a husband, and so forth. So our context can lull us into thinking that we are someone we're not, can 
lull us into slipping into patterns that are, that are old. And so Peter reminds his hearers by calling them two things. He says, beloved, only twice in this letter does he call them beloved. Here and then in chapter four, he says, beloved. Now yes, this is a pastoral designation that Peter is giving the church. It's one of affection that he has for them. But I think it's more than that especially as it comes on the heels of this gospel foundation. He's reminding them, you are recipients of this grace. This grace that was prophesied by the prophets, that was longed for by the angels, and that has now been revealed for us in the person of Jesus. You are beloved. And in essence, he's just reminding us to every day remind ourselves of that. Preach the gospel to yourself. You are a son and a daughter of the Most High. You are beloved. Going back to my trip to Uganda, and the preparations, I remember also one of the distinct things about that trip was receiving letters, not letters that had come in the mail, because I wasn't there long enough, but letters that I had taken that my family had written for me. While I was away from them for this two-week period, every day I had an opportunity to open up and to be reminded of the love that my family has for me of the prayers that were being prayed for me. Peter says, you are beloved. Remember that. How easily we can be lulled, and we've talked about this before, into an orphan mentality, thinking we're alone and that we need to figure all of this out. But we don't. Beloved, he says. And then, as sojourners and exiles, I'm kind of putting those two words together because they're related, right? As one author said, we are tethered to heaven. Our true home is elsewhere. We are a minority. We're a fringe folk here in this world. And there's a, both a, this is not our home aspect to sojourners and exiles, and there also is a we are made for something better aspect of this. And so don't get comfortable. You were made, remember, for something more. And Peter directly ties this identity as he reminds us, I mean, he already told us back in chapter one that we are elect exiles of the dispersion, right? That's how we opened the letter. But he, he reminds us as sojourners and exiles, as you remember that you are those things, then that identity, beloved, becomes the motivating factor, the reason for abstaining from the passions of the flesh, right? Because you are these things, So that's the first aspect of identity that he wants us to think rightly about. But there's another motivating factor for us in thinking about ceasing from sin in living an exile life that's different. And it has to do not just how you think about your identity, but how you think about suffering. 
Listen again to chapter 4, verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, what exactly is Peter saying here? Well, first of all, he's reminding us of Jesus' suffering. Right? There's this word, therefore, there, which ought to point us back to what preceded the word, therefore. Verses that we'll cover in weeks to come, because we're not quite to chapter 3 yet. But verses like 318, if you have your Bibles open, look at it with me, where Peter writes, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so Peter is saying, think about that suffering of Christ, remembering that Christ's suffering on the cross ended his conquest with sin. Not his own sin, because Christ didn't have any sin, but the sin that he bore on behalf of you and I, on behalf of his beloved in his dying for the penalty of our sin, his suffering becomes our suffering. His death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. So Peter is reminding us, he is saying to us, that Christ's suffering ushers in resurrection life for all those who look in faith to him. Now these things are true of you and I. Chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Romans 6, 8 through 12. Now we have died with Christ. We believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions." So living in exile, arming yourselves, means arming yourselves with the life of Christ, with the mind of Christ, with the resolve that, as the gospel writers said, he set his face to Jerusalem. As Paul says, he obeyed to the point of death even death on a cross. And so Peter, I think, first of all, is saying, think about, think from, if that makes sense, think about and think from or through the sufferings of our Savior. Once you've done that, think about your own suffering. Because the fact of the matter is that life in exile involves Suffering. So resolve that you will, as he says elsewhere, not be surprised when you suffer as Christ suffered for the sake of Christ. 
because whoever suffers shows that they are about the will of God, not the ways of the world. And that's the second thing. Living in exile involves arming ourselves with a new way of thinking about identity, about the work of Christ and the sufferings of Christ and putting that ever before us, but it also requires, living in exile requires abstaining. So there's the two words, arming and abstaining. Arming and abstaining. We live in a culture that says, show me the money. Show me the comfort. Show me the pleasures. Show me the happiness. We live in a world where no one wants to miss out. Where FOMO is a thing. But the reality of a life of exile, Peter says to the church, the life that Jesus calls his people to is a life of abstinence. There will be, there must be, have-nots in our lives. Missing out that is replaced by the will of God. And so in verse 11 of chapter 2, he speaks about the passions of the flesh. And he kind of leaves this real broad, what, what is the passions of the flesh? In verse 3 of chapter 4, he speaks more specifically to this first century audience that he's writing to. And he says, here are some of the things that are going on around you. And you guys participated in this stuff before you came to Christ. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Right? These were some of the things going on in the Roman culture of their day. Things that if these young believers didn't participate in, they looked crazy. Or worse yet, they were considered a problem. Killjoys. And so Peter says in both of these passages, chapter 2, verse 12, when they speak against you as evildoers, those who do these things, and in verse 4 of chapter 4, when they malign you, notice if it's not if, if they malign you, but when they do, when they speak ill of you, Peter says to the church, they're going to be surprised. They're going to be offended. They're going to be shocked at your unwillingness to engage in these activities, and therefore you're going to be misunderstood. These early Christians were creating, uh, were, were replacing the entertainment of their day with a whole nother set of priorities. One commentator said it really well in a matter of three lines. He says, fervent love of brothers and sisters in Christ had replaced lust. Alert awareness of the times had replaced drunken stupors. And the joyful adoration of the risen Lord had replaced the folly of idolatry. And indeed, Roman history, Roman historians record the culture's frustration and disdain for the actions of the early church and for the ways that the early church abstained from the cultural air that they breathed. 
Here's two quotes from Roman historians speaking of Christians that they were loathed because of their abominations. That they were a class of people animated by a novel and mischievous superstition. And of course, it's that kind of misunderstanding, it's that kind of malign, maligning that resulted in much of the persecution that the first century church endured. And Peter's writing to a church that's beginning to feel that. So when we hear these words, when we try to bring them into our day and age, how hard is it for us? Well, I don't think it's that hard. We live in a culture that's obsessed with sex and sensuality. We live in a culture that I would add is saturated with triviality. A culture that has made the pursuit of happiness, which we've translated into my pleasure and my comfort, the goal of our lives and the goal of our existence. So I think as we think about abstaining as the people of God, as those living a life in exile, we gotta ask, how does the will of God look and live differently? I mean, generally speaking, we say it refuses to be fixated on and to celebrate the same kinds of things. It's not content with saying on the surface of, of banality, but wants to sober-mindedly plunge into the depths of what is significant and true and real. The selfish American dream is not enough but a selfless life of pouring ourselves out on behalf of others for the glory of God. And I'm hesitant, I thought about this a little bit, but I'm hesitant to put too fine a point on this concerning what this looks like in your lives. But I'll just ask this question, because I've asked it of myself. What are you being entertained by? And why? What, as you think about the, the war that's being waged for your soul in 2020, as you remember the fact that you are not made for this place, you're a pilgrim, you're an exile, you're a sojourner, you're beloved. To protect your own soul, what do you need to say goodbye to this year? What do you need to give up? The world will hate you for these choices. They will misunderstand, they will malign you. They say you're holier than thou. But just like Peter says, it's a taste, just a taste of suffering that many of people in our world, on our planet, even this morning know much more deeply than we ever will in our existence. Living in exile means abstaining 
putting aside the passions of the flesh, living for the will of God. And at the end of the day, as Peter kind of wraps up both of these exhortations, chapter two, chapter four, at the end of the day, they will see your good deeds, he says. This, this is about mission. This is about witness. Peter, of course, is grabbing a hold of Jesus' words here in Jesus, in Matthew chapter five. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's an interesting thing to say in the context of what he was talking about because it's a reminder that even in the criticism, even in the maligning of the world for the choices that Christians make, for the things they abstain from, for the things they stand for, for the way that they think differently about the world, even in the maligning, the world knows what goodness is. They see it. They recognize it. Of course, more than that, they were made for it. But believing their own flesh and the, bent, the bentness of their own hearts, believing the enemy and the cultural air they breathe, they, they run after things that they don't really want <laughs> and they don't really need. And I find my heart doing the same thing. Just getting caught up. So Peter admonishes the church in these passages, in this letter, to point us the way. He reminds the church, he reminds the world that we are all hurtling towards a day. In verse 12 of chapter 2, he calls it a day of visitation. In verse 5 of chapter 4, it's clearly a day of judgment. A day of accounting where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's what we're all hurtling towards. But until then, Church of Jesus Christ, he says, arm yourselves with a way of thinking remembering who you are as beloved sojourners, remembering your union with the suffering one, that as you abstain from the world, as you suffer for abstaining from the world, his coming and his coming again might be your comfort and that the glory that you exude might be your witness to the world and the thing that points them to the Father. Arming and abstaining the life of exile. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word which speaks to us with clarity and I pray that I and my words about it have not muddled or muddied the waters but have pointed out those things that are true and helpful for our lives together. We need your wisdom. We need your grace to wake up each day with the gospel clarity of remembering who we are and then having that clear power 
from your spirit to suffer for the name of Christ. Abstaining from that which is easy, that which is popular for something deeper and better and more lasting. Father, how this word and how these truths work out in the lives of your people here, I don't specifically know. But I pray that they would. As we discuss as families, as community groups gather to engage, Father, continue the work that you've begun in us, setting us apart for your glory, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.